Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful show for you this evening. James J.B. Brown, one of the nation's leading test pilots who worked at the famous Lockheed Skunk Works, is here. And we're going to hear all about that and all the other very, very cool things that he has done during his test pilot career. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, we are pushing through right now and approaching the end of this Fly to Win Challenge on Social Flight. And we are giving away a Lightspeed Delta Zulu headset on December 1st, just in time for the holidays. And so if you want to win this amazing headset, all you need to do is get the free Social Flight mobile app, get out there and check in at any airport, even if it's your local airport. A single check-in gets you entered into the drawing to win that Lightspeed Delta Zulu headset. And if you go out there, collect points, fly to more destinations and airports and rack up the points and get on our leaderboard, well then you can get multiple entries into that, increasing your chances to win that Delta Zulu headset. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Whip Air and their Whip Line floats. And what many people may not know is that they also offer avionics, paint, interior, maintenance, all sorts of cool things. If you have not visited the Whip Air facility at the South St. Paul Airport, you definitely need to check that out. It's it's amazing, and you can get a tour of how they build these floats and see the size and scale of what keeps things uh, like those caravans afloat, and it's it's truly amazing. So I definitely check it out. And again, uh, they uh, they have aircraft for sale. They've got a, oh, just so much going on there. It's a very, very cool place to visit. And just today, they announced uh, a big deal where they have their Fire Boss, which is an air tractor equipped with whip air floats that, um, that actually scoops up water and deploys uh, over and, uh, to do firefighting. And uh, they've got a deal for 31 of those aircraft now uh, with Air Tractor Europe uh, going over. So lots of cool things happening with whip air and we are grateful for their support of Social Flight. Now to tonight's show. J.B. Brown is a unique pilot with experience on some of the most amazing aircraft that the United States has ever developed. Following Air Force tours flying the F-4 Phantom and the F-5 Tiger, he was selected to attend the United States Air Force Test Pilot School and went on to test the A-7 Corsair II, the F-15 Strike Eagle, and the F-117 Stealth Fighter, and even the F-22 Raptor. In 1994, he joined the Lockheed Skunk Works as an experimental test pilot for the F-117, and he helped to develop the new software, avionics, and even weapon systems that made such a difference of that and uh, for that aircraft. And many of those improvements that JB worked on saw service in Operation Joint Endeavor over Bosnia and then the Second Gulf War Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's currently president of the National Test Pilot School, helping to train test pilots from around the world, and he's logged over 10,000 
1,000 flight hours in 154 different models of aircraft. I am absolutely thrilled to have him with us tonight. I'm going to bring him on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, J.B. Brown. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Jeff. I'm doing fine. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you have a truly amazing background flying and testing some some aircraft that, that I think people only dream about or kids have posters on their walls. And for you, it's it's all in a day's work. Um, tell me a little bit about the story of like, how did how did you get to that point? What First of all, as we said in the beginning, you know, you started in the Air Force. What made your decision to go join the Air Force? I, uh, you know, as a young guy, I was sitting there watching TV and watching Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, John Glenn walk out to their rocket ships carrying their little air conditioner pack, wearing their uh, spacesuits. And I said, you know, I want to do that. And uh, it's been kind of a, a singular drive for me uh, through school. Uh, you know, how do you become an astronaut? Well, you got to be an Air Force fighter pilot. Okay, join the Air Force, be a fighter pilot. Then you got to be a test pilot, okay, test pilot school. Um, uh, I'm proud to say I've got some very nice rejection letters from NASA. Uh, uh, never never uh, went into space, but uh, I've had astronauts tell me they were jealous of my job, so I'll stick with that. <laughs> and that I remember, did it, is it true that like when when you were just getting getting started and looking at at uh, at NASA that the timing kind of became a little bit of an issue with with uh, the shuttle program? Well, not not really. Um, when I finished I finished test pilot school in 1986, and uh, the shuttle program was going uh, going uh, full speed. Um, Unfortunately, my first day of test pilot school was the day of the Challenger disaster. Mm. So uh, that, that was kind of a kick in the gut. Whoa, do we, am I sure I want to do this? But uh, that, that didn't slow anything down for me um, anyway. Tell me about flying the, the Phantom in the Air Force. That, that has always been, that's always been one of my favorite aircraft as models as a kid. When you look at it, I mean, that you talk about power. That, that thing is... I think the biggest, it just has the biggest impact and ramp presence of anything I've ever seen. You, you know, they call it the Rhino, and, and what an appropriate nickname. Uh, you know, the tail's bent down, the wings have bent up, it smoked, it grumbled, it roared, it vibrated, and uh, just great airplane for a young lieutenant uh, to uh, start off in, because they, they'd always pair us young guys with the old crusty back seaters. They wanted to stay alive, so they would... Uh, they would keep us in line. Uh, I had one that had, you know, the little telescoping pointers that you fit in your pocket. He would do, he'd telescope that thing and reach up. If I was doing something stupid, he'd start tapping me on the helmet. You know, what, what's going on? So it was just a fantastic airplane. And, uh, you know, when I was, uh, you know, 25 years old, they gave me the keys to an F4 and uh, turn me loose in Germany with a tank of gas and say, hey, how about bringing it back if you don't mind? You know, try not to hurt yourself. What, do you remember the, the first time you stepped up to that plane and what it was like to feel those, the afterburners and, and all the power? The, uh, yeah, not, not distinctly. Um, the, the kick of the afterburners in F4 wasn't that much more than the kick of a T-38 that I'd been training in. 
Um, I just remember, you know, walking up to the airplane and it was big, you know, kind of used all the airplanes that uh, we flew had, had flown in Vietnam. So, uh, um, you know, it was kind of, kind of dirty, but you'd expect that out of a Phantom. Uh, this particular picture is uh, was taken uh, flying from Germany to Spain, uh, an F-4E model uh, with the 480th Tactical Fighter Squadron out of Spangdalem, Germany. Wow, uh, very cool. So uh, following your, your time flying Phantoms, uh, you went on to fly the uh, F-5 Tiger. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I was an aggressor pilot, so our uh, our job, the reason we flew the F-5 is if you take the uh, energy maneuverability uh, capabilities of the F-5 and the MiG-21, they pretty much laid right on top of one another. So the F-5 was a great simulator for the uh, for the MiG-21. And uh, we trained at Nellis, and then uh, they taught us the uh, Soviet tactics and uh, ways of flying the airplane. And then uh, I was stationed in England, and we went all over NATO, uh, two, three-week uh, deployments to uh, train NATO fighter pilots how to fight against the, uh, the, uh, the MiG. Interesting. What are some of the differences that then that that you learn when you're in, in doing, you know, when you're doing aggressor flying? That I mean, like, how do they train you? What the how the Russians fly? Well, we had uh, pretty good intelligence on uh, what their exercises were like, what formations they used, and uh, they they were at the time doing a lot of mass tactics. You know, six, eight ship formations all doing these maneuvers. And uh, we did have one restriction against us, which was we were not allowed to do anything that we had not seen the Soviets do. So we had to see it in the intelligence reports before we could uh, uh, present it to the, uh, the NATO forces. We couldn't get creative and invent the tactics of our own. Right. Um, right. And it's real interesting. Uh, we'd go somewhere for two weeks. The first few days were basically going one versus one stuff. and. Uh, we do pretty good. You know, we're fighting against F-15s and F-16s and uh, uh, we would do very well. And then you could see the light come, come on as they learned how to fight against that airplane. And then uh, the latter part of the two week trip, you know, they punish us pretty good, which is that's the whole idea of the training. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. The Did you have to try to also change your, your flying so that the F-5 mimicked a little bit more what the Soviet aircraft were? Well, not that much. You know, once we got into the visual fight, once we presented the tactics and, uh, uh, you know, got into the visual, the dogfight, as it were, it, it was just dogfighting. You know, it was mano y mano, have at it, and, uh, and the first guy to make a mistake is going to pay the price. Wow, and and but that's interesting that there was a big difference between how the Soviets, um, you know, did that even the dogfighting uh, approach to things. Yeah, um, we felt that uh, yeah we probably overtrained. Uh, I think as a group, as the aggressors, we were a lot better one-on-one -on -one dogfighters than the uh, Soviets would have been. But you know, it's it's hard to say what I'm. It's hard to take what I'm saying without it sounding like bravado, but I think we had plenty of intel to tell us that uh, 
they were very scripted and mechanical in what they did as opposed to the Western style, which is uh, think for yourself and be more fluid. Wow. I, I, I want to jump ahead uh, really quick because um, you're you're well uh, you're right now located somewhere where you are doing some test flying and you're actually flying some soviet aircraft can you tell me a little bit about that yeah i'm in uh, actually uh, in st petersburg florida and i'm testing a mig-21 uh, out of st petersburg clearwater airport um, the airplane had been uh, sitting on the ground about 10 years and it's been refurbished and i'm doing the first five hour uh, FAA uh, fly off on the airplane to uh, you know get rid of any infant mortality. Compare the flight envelope of this particular airplane to what the MiG-21 should be, and make sure it's operating properly. And then I uh, you know hand it off to the owner. I've got to teach him how to fly it first, which is going to be an interesting uh, challenge. Uh, but then you know the intent is to hand it over to him and. Uh, you know, have fun, buddy. It costs a lot of money. <laughs> What's it like flying a MiG-21? Uh, one, it's not very comfortable. And uh, two, it's a, uh, it's a very interesting airplane to fly. The Eastern Bloc design philosophies are, are different in the way they do things. For instance, the brakes are not on the rudder pedals. It's a bicycle grip on the stick. And... Uh, you know, it's different things like that. The airplane only has trim and pitch. Uh, so for rolling yaw, there's no trim. And you fly in that airplane 100% of the time. If you get distracted or you let go of the stick, it's going to go somewhere. And uh, you need to snatch it back to where you want it to be. Um, cockpit is pretty small. Uh, and there is a distinct aroma inside the cockpit of a MiG-21. I, I can't describe it. It's ozone, hydraulic fluid, fuel, BO. I, it, you know, I, uh, I went, I, I did some MiG-21 flying and then there was a very extended period where I, I didn't fly the airplane. And I uh, crawled back into one, I lift up the canopy and stick my nose in there. And it was a PTSD moment. So, whoa. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you, you spend all day flying a MiG-21, you go to the bar that night, you get to sit by yourself. Nobody wants to be near you. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, yeah, and it, it is interesting, the distinction between the two. I remember going to the Boeing Museum once out in Seattle, and they had the each the Soviet versus the American fighters that were up against each other in each of the different eras. And you could see them side by side. And the the difference is just so dramatic when you are side by side to see the Soviet philosophy for building aircraft and designing aircraft and you know what the priorities were. It's just it's it was night and day. Yeah, and they're very pragmatic. Um, if you got the mission done, they stuck with it. Uh, typically, their stuff is very robust. Once you get it working, it works forever. And uh, it's pretty where it needs to be pretty, i.e. like the inside of the intakes are very well engineered and real well manufactured. But uh, where it doesn't need to be pretty, pretty like on the back end of the airplane where the boundary layer is thicker, you got rivets sticking out, bolts, stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, some only, of the things I remember were 13,000 MiG-21s. Wow. 
Now you've also got time in a MIG twenty in, in MIG twenty three. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so that's the uh, the swing wing big brother of the MIG twenty one. It's uh it's about double the mass of a MIG twenty one. A big big motor around an airplane that's designed to go straight and very fast. It's not a, a dog fighting airplane. And if I had to compare the two, I would say you know the MIG twenty one is your little sports car. It's very twitchy and and agile, whereas the MIG twenty three kind of flies like a truck. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I uh, going back back in time to your your Air Force time. I've I've heard a lot of people say some pretty nice things about the F five. What was that like? Uh, you know, coming off of flying the T thirty eight in training is very you know it's the same basic airplane really. Um, the airplane flew very nicely. Uh, the stick forces were pretty high. Uh, you find that you're at high angle of attack, pulling a lot of G. You got two hands on the stick uh, to uh, to you know to pull. Um, but it was uh, was very forgiving as far as uh, you know, going out of control or something like that. You could you could bang the airplane around pretty good, and it wouldn't uh, bark back at back at you. Um, wow. The weak point on the F five is those J eighty five engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very susceptible to flame out. So if you're banging the throttle around, pulling a lot of G, and more than once I came through the cockpit. So the alternate air start procedure is just go full afterburner. So I'd be back looking over my shoulder. I go full afterburner, come into the cockpit and see the engines relighting and accelerating back up to operating speed. Wow. That, um, so tell me about test pilot school. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things people, a lot of people don't really understand what it means to be a test pilot. Um, beyond just climbing in something and, and taking the risks. What it, tell me a little bit about what, what the school was like and then what, what the job really is. Sure, sure. Well, they, from day one, they issue your silk scarf so you can <laughs> throw it over your shoulder and your uh, Chuck, Chuck Yeager uh, fan club badge. No, uh, seriously, um, in its core, Test Pilot School is uh, graduate level aeronautical engineering. We, you know, you get there, you've got a thousand hours or so, you know that airplanes wiggle and now you're learning why and how they wiggle and how to characterize that stuff. Um, so there's a lot of uh, academics to it. Um, at National Test Pilot School, our graduates earn a master's degree uh, with the level of education. Um, and then there's the precision flying. You gotta be a very precise pilot. A uh, uh, flight test is a science experiment. So one of the keys to a science experiment is you eliminate the variables. So if the engineers want you at 23,000 feet and 400 knots, you're at 23,000 feet, 400 knots. Typical uh, performance flight testing uh, tolerances are like plus or minus two knots, uh, plus or minus 100 feet. Uh, so, you know, very, very pre- precise tolerances. So you've got to develop that skill. Also, uh, you know, at some point in time, when a brand new airplane comes out, somebody's got to get in it and fly it for the first time. And with that comes the ability to rapidly adapt to a new airplane, uh, sensations, feelings, control schemes and things like that. Not that somebody just goes totally cold into a brand new airplane, but 
nobody exactly knows how it's going to fly until it goes airborne. So uh, adaptability is a key skill that's taught in test pilot school. In, in my one year at uh, Air Force Test Pilot School, I flew 34 different types of airplanes. Everything wow. from gliders, to, uh, they took us to Houston to fly the space shuttle simulator, uh, cargo planes, fighter planes, um, all sorts of different stuff, propellers, turboprops, jets. Um, in one day, I soloed in three different glider types, for instance. Um, and, and that gets that adaptability so you can go from one airplane to another. Um, my biggest contrast in any one day was in the morning, I took off in an F-117, chewed up about 8,000 feet of Palmdale's runway, lumbered into the air at about 180 knots and went out, and, you know, the flickering lights and the screens, and did the uh, stealth fighter stuff. That afternoon, I got into a 1928 travel air biplane. And uh, the, the, I was in the front seat, and the only uh, the only instrument I had was a sign that said "No spitting." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but adaptability is a, uh, a key skill. But most importantly, uh, the test pilot has to be able to observe and report on what occurred in that flight test. If, uh, you know, it's a very expensive business. And if you go out, spend all this money to go out and do something, and then you come back and you don't have the ability to communicate to the engineers in engineering terms what that what the result of the test was, uh, you have no backing. Um, so uh, the observe, uh, analyze, and report is, is very key. And then, uh, also, you're taught to embrace the discipline of flight test. You know, you see the, the right stuff, Jaeger's taxi and buys, oh, it's Jaeger, it must be okay. That, that is not the way flight test is done. It's very calculated, very measured, and uh, it's the, you got, a, you got a requirement of some sort. This airplane must climb at such a rate, fly X number of miles, dogfight for 10 minutes, and come home. So you take that requirement and you break it apart, and from that, you build the test, you know, what kind of uh, test points or test maneuvers you're going to do to prove that that airplane can do that, meet the requirement. Then you put it together in a test plan. And at the same time, you've got to develop the safety scheme on how uh, you're going to conduct this test without hurting yourself, hurting the airplane, or hurting uh, innocent bystanders. Uh, today's... Uh, aerospace world you're building maybe one maybe two prototypes of a, a new vehicle and if you as a test pilot crash that sucker not only are, you know you may die in the process but also there are hundreds thousands of jobs at stake uh, entire programs have been canceled as a result of that so the safety uh, aspect is very huge then you go out you execute you bring this data back analyze the data and uh, then report to the, the people who need that information. It could be as simple as going to the general, say, yes, general, buy this, or it could be as complex as a 500-page report, you know, full of uh, analytical uh, work on uh, cruise performance or something like that. Yeah. Um, we work very closely with the flight test engineers. They are a, a key and integral part 
of the, of the flight test team. Um, it, it's only a little bit of a joke, but you know, if you do really good, they might give you a banana when you get back. <laughs> and I've been given bananas after flights. I thought I did okay. Well, it's it's interesting about how important that language is about how to communicate what happened on a flight. Because as you said, it's not just, it's not really about, hey, I went out there and I did this and I didn't die, like the plane did it. It's about getting all this information back to engineers. There was something that you, I remember you told me that you've done uh, back when, when the, um, with the uh, fall of, of the Soviet Union and a little more openness and exchange um, about how like they sent over a test pilot. Can you tell me, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Glasnost Perestroika is happening and uh, um, the Soviet Union's on the way down and they came to the U.S. Air Force and said, hey, we'll let one of your guys fly a, a Su-27 if you let one of our guys fly the F-15. So us in the test pilot world are going, send a test pilot, send a test pilot, you better send a test pilot. And uh, the Soviets ended up sending their chief test pilot to fly the F-15, whereas uh, we sent a, a guy from Langley Air Force Base that was just your uh, line fighter pilot. And I was tasked, hey, go to Langley, talk to this guy and learn about the SU-27. And it was like pulling teeth. You know, how the airplane fly? Oh, it flew great. <laughs> okay, let's figure out what great means, you know. Let's talk stick forces, stick deflections, uh, you know, damping, uh, you know, dynamic uh, maneuvering, et cetera. And, and the guy, we got nothing out of the exercise, but the uh, Soviets got <laughs> they very good. They're expert. They got, lots of, they got lots of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So, um, you're, so you're in t test pilot school, and then as a test pilot, you're working on the A7 Corsair II. I mean, that that's an interesting a aircraft, of course, with its, you know, uh, articulating wing. Um, that was the F8. The A7 did not have the articulating wing. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, it had the big mouth. It, but, yeah, it uh, looked similar, it was, but didn't have that. So you got yeah. that. You got the Strike Eagle. And then the one that, that everyone wants to hear about, your time with the with the stealth fighter. Um, tell me about the first time you got exposed to that or how you got tasked to, to work on the stealth fighter. Okay, well, the first time I saw one, I was uh, flying an F-15 uh, somewhere north of Las Vegas, places we don't go. And uh, this thing flew by and the uh, radar controller goes, hey, did you see that? Go, yeah, what was that? He goes, well... Uh, don't worry about it, but we got some paperwork for you when you get back on the ground. <laughs> turned out to be an F-117. That um, you were not supposed to see. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to see, right, right. So I uh, I had a house full of young girls. I had five daughters. I, admit, I was a major in the Air Force, and uh, I was looking at what it was going to take to put them through college, and, and the Air Force wasn't going to pay that bill. So I was looking to get out of the Air Force, and I was thinking airlines because I knew what the airline pay was. You could, you know, get that pretty easy, and that seemed like a uh, a good way to go to to be able to, you know, pay for these girls' uh, education. And I'm in a pickup truck headed to the Chow Hall, and this 
the technical director at the base I was at, the, the chief civilian flags me down and says, hey, have you ever thought about working for Lockheed? Uh, no, I didn't think I had the horsepower. I said, okay, let me hook you up. And uh, like two weeks later, he uh, arranged for me to meet with uh, Mr. Dave Ferguson, who is the uh, chief test pilot at Skunk Works. Uh, Dave, had been, he was the second pilot to fly the F-117, and he did the first flight on the YF-22. So uh, not a slouch in his own right. And uh, I was getting ready to fly a, a classified airplane that um, Dave had flown previously. So my job interview, I'm wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt and we're talking about, well, how do you fly this airplane? Uh, you know, what do, you know, what nasty habits does it have? And uh, I guess he liked my act and I kind of got a, a wink and a handshake. They couldn't make a job offer because I was still active duty. Um, so, uh, you know, feeling pretty good. And then uh, about a month after that, the Soviet Union disappeared, poof, collapsed, and all the defense budget went away. And he calls me up and says, hey, sorry, what we were going to do, we're not going to do anymore, uh, but stay in touch. And uh, about two years later, the phone rang. They were having a bit of a shakeup at Skunk Works. And he said, hey, you want to come fly the F-117? I said, yes. I was flying for United Airlines at the time. And, uh, you know, dragging my suitcase through Boise wasn't the most thrilling thing for a test pilot. So there's the hero shot uh, on the ramp there in uh, Palmdale, California. Um, I was in the test squad and we were at Palmdale. All the other airplanes were uh, at that time at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. Uh, we had four F-117s there. Three of them were YF-117s. They were pre-production versions. And then we had one uh, combat-coded air airplane that we did our testing on. Um, when you say combat-coded, you mean you mean fully like coded for radar signature? Uh, no, no coding. Uh, you know how they on the books how it was. Oh, got it. Combat capable. Um, got it. The YF airplanes were instrumented. Uh, they had a bunch of equipment in them that weren't in the combat airplanes for the flight test stuff. Um, I first flew the airplane in February of 1995, and my initial testing was to um, determine the uh, capabilities of modifications to the airplane that resulted from the first Gulf War. Um, the, uh, uh, after the war, there were a lot of lessons learned. One big one was uh, when the F-117 went across uh, the, uh, the front lines, you retracted all the antennas into the airplane for stealth. And so the uh, that version of the airplane, they couldn't communicate. And we found that it was very important that the guys in combat be able to communicate with one another. So we did a lot of testing on the stealthy radio antennas. Uh, we were putting a new inertial navigation system in the airplane. The, uh, the original was a, that came out of a B-52. And you had to power that sucker up like 55 minutes before engine start to let it uh, spin up to speed. And we put a ring laser gyro uh, system in there that, you know, after like eight minutes, it was ready to go. And also we tied in a global positioning system into that system. The F-117 was the first airplane uh, with a integrated inertial navigation and GPS System. So I did a lot of GPS testing, GPS jamming, uh, navigation testing with the airplane. Um, 
dropped hundreds of bombs uh, out on the ranges at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, working the, uh, we call it the error budget. This is when you say the computer says bomb release and you've consented, you know, there's computational time delays and how long it takes for it to figure it out. The door has to open, the bomb has to come off, all of that stuff. And uh, so we, we dropped a lot of bombs to get a statistical look at where the errors were in the system. Did the computer take five milliseconds too long to calculate? So we're gonna change the software to fix that, you know, things like that. Interesting. I mean, it's really interesting what you said about how the early F-117s had to have retractable antennas. For, and so the pilots had no communication, not with each other, not with anybody else, once they went essentially stealth. That must have been really difficult on them. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, there's a guy named Greg Feast, he retired as a major general. Um, he was the first guy into Baghdad and therefore the first one out. And, you know, these guys didn't know if the stealth stuff was going to work. You know, he, he knew he made it into Baghdad and back out, but he didn't know about his uh, other wingmen and his buddies. And one by one, they all came back out. The antennas came out and he heard them checking in. And, uh, you know, to him, that was a hugely emotional uh, moment to realize, hey, everybody's checked in. We're, we're good to go. That's Maybe a, this that's stuff does work. That's a big, big development for you to be able to test, uh, you know, that you can communicate and not have a, a radar signature that's going to get or that's going to cause a problem for the aircraft. What, what, what was the process of learning how to fly and what does it actually fly like? Um, the, uh, the process was, hey, I was just thumbing through my logbook the other day. Um, it was about a month of academics and simulators. Uh, probably, I'm thinking maybe 15 hours in the simulator uh, before they let us loose on the airplane. Uh, before the first flight, you did a practice, you got into the airplane, you just cranked it up, you taxied to the end of the runway, taxied back, so you got through all the, uh, um, you know, checklist procedures and stuff. Uh, first flight, you're chased by a, a T-38, the instructor's in the T-38, he followed you all around. Um, I think it was like five flights and then, um, and you're doing what we call contact flying, you know, it's, uh, flying instruments, doing some mild aerobatics, uh, stuff like that. And then uh, you get your instrument and qualification check ride. Um, after that, you go into a, um, the mission qualification training. I didn't do all of that because I was a test pilot. I went back to Palmdale to do tests. And, and since it was, you know, one of the early fly-by-wire and, and, and everything else, what, what, as far as flying qualities, uh, what was it like? Yeah, very good. Very good flying qualities. It flew very much like the A7. Um, so, you know, they, they, that was their companion trainer. And uh, I think they, they chose very well the, uh, the power characteristics. You know, it'd take a while to get it going. But once, once you got up to, you know, 450, 500 knots, this sucker would go. And um, it was uh, fully aerobatic. Um, Everybody said, oh, it's a bomber, blah, blah, blah. But, but you know, it's fully aerobatic airplane. Seven Gs is what the flight controls would give you. Uh, we flew to a six G limit, thinking that extra one G is if you're desperate and need it. 
Um, you can roll it and do all the other fighter pilot type stuff in the airplane. Um, as long as you stayed within the flight envelope, everything was good. Uh, you got those four pitot booms sticking out front. There are four channels in the flight control system, four flight control computers, and they all spoke to one another. They had a voting scheme where they would, uh, as an aggregate, come up with a solution to move the flight controls around to, to maneuver the airplane. If one of those failed, the other three would vote it off the island and you get a warning light in the cockpit. That wasn't a land right now type of emergency, but you weren't gonna go uh, into bad guy land with that situation, you'd turn around and head back. If two of those computers failed, then the remaining two didn't know which was correct, the airplane would go out of control. Uh, that never happened in the history of the airplane. Uh, they're very robust uh, systems. So. When I talk flight envelope, on the max max end, we were limited to 0.9 times the speed of sound, 0.9 Mach, because if you approach supersonic and you started attaching shock waves to the pitot boom, garbage in, it's garbage out, and the, the flight controls uh, wouldn't know what to do and the airplane would go out of control. Now on the slow speed end, I think it was 145 knots. It's been a while. But I didn't, realize, I didn't realize that it was a subsonic aircraft. I'm sorry? I didn't realize it was a subsonic aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, the air data into those probes would start getting erratic at the slow speeds. So that's yeah. that bounded uh, uh, what you could do. The altitude was limited by the auxiliary power unit. It was a uh, came out of a 757, and it was limited to 35,000 feet just for its operation and you had to have it on all the time in case you had an electrical problem. That was the immediate backup for the flight controls. Um, wow. I, I, a lot of people also don't realize, right there. Uh, I think a lot of people also don't realize that it didn't have a lot of power on takeoff like that. You needed, you needed to go long and fast. Yeah, um, in Palmdale in the summertime, we could only take off with about 50% fuel. So a lot of times you take off and go to the tanker and fill up, you know, the hot, high, humid day. It isn't rotation speed even very high on that? You know, I don't remember exactly what it was. I'm thinking it was somewhere up around 160 knots, something like that. So yeah, like three times, four times the GA aircraft speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you got You got to think about it. It's just different. It's a different machine. It was built for one job, a, a singular purpose, and it was a golden BB. Um, you know, originally they were only going to build, I think, twelve of them, and then they kept adding batches. Uh, we got, uh, I think, a total of sixty were built. Um, but you got to think about how this airplane changed warfare. Um, Saddam Hussein had spent billions of rubles building this air defense system. Uh, the U.S. spent $3 billion in the development and production of the F-117 fleet. That's one aircraft carrier. And uh, basically rendered all of that worthless. And uh, when you think psychologically, so guy like Saddam Hussein, some despot, he builds this wall around him and he's back there doing bad things to good people. And 
all of a sudden now we can come knock on his door, say, hello, we're here, we're coming after you. And that really changes their mindset. Um, between the first and second Gulf War, Sodom would start to uh, rattle his sabers a little bit. We'd send two F-117s down to Kuwait and all of a sudden he'd back off right away. Wow. Pretty interesting dynamic. Yeah. So tell me about the Skunk Works and being there in that environment. Um, what was, what? I mean, such a famous place and you're doing obviously flight tests and development. Tell me a little bit about how it operates and what makes it so special. I think the, uh, the, the primary advantage of the Skunk Works is the ability to do things rapidly and with a small team, relatively small team. You know, I don't know how many guys Kelly Johnson had putting together the uh, P-80, for instance, but it was, you know, probably less than 100. Um, at Palmdale, where we were with the F-117, uh, we had the test squadron right there. Uh, 200 yards away was the uh, depot maintenance where they did all the heavy maintenance on the, uh, on the fleet of airplanes. So every F-117 cycled through there. Another 200 yards down the ramp was the uh, the parts warehouse for all of the spare parts for the F-117. And I don't know, half mile down the road was the headquarters that had all the engineers. So I'd go up and fly, some system uh, wouldn't work properly. I'd come down and within 15 minutes, I had the engineer that designed that system sitting in my office. And we're talking about, you know, that information I was supposed to bring back. You know, it flew good. But, uh, you know, um, so that that was a great advantage. And um, during the second Gulf War, I forget the number, but our time from uh, order to parts delivery in Kuwait was something like on, you know, 20 hours maybe. And 16, 17 hours of that, it's sitting on an airplane. So it's, that's a tribute to FedEx and the, the UPS boys. but. Uh, the ability to, to do rapid stuff like that was uh, key. Wow. Uh, actually, on several programs, uh, uh, I'm working directly with the design engineers. Hey, we want to be able to do this. And, you know, so Tommy Test Pilot come down there and sit and talk to the guys. Says, well, you can't do it over here because he's got to use that hand to fly the airplane. You got to do it over here. Oh, we didn't think about that. You know, you get to sit down into some some basic stuff. Uh, the ability for the test pilot as a representative of the operational pilots to work with the design engineers is, is crucial and very important. It seems like uh, the, the Skunk Works in particular takes that to a whole new level of kind of breaking down walls and, and making that whole process very, very efficient. I think so, and I certainly hope so. I hope it continues, because uh, that, that is key. What, was there a cultural difference also compared to other places that you've been about what it was like inside the Skunk Works? Um, well, I don't want to call out any uh, particular company, but when I flew the F-15, never once did I have any interface with the design engineer. Wow. And meanwhile, they're basically sitting in your lap. You know, they were located 1,500 miles away, 2,000 miles away, and, uh, you know, was, you'd write the report and never hear anything back, as opposed to the guy sitting in your office 15 minutes later. 
big deal. That's 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 really interesting. Yeah. Tell me. Now, so, that, so you moved on from that to the F twenty two Raptor. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the Raptor for a bit. Tell me a little bit about your experience with with that. So I got there in uh, 2002. The first flight of the airplane, I believe, was in 1998. So they've been kind of loping along with the flight test program. Um, I got there in February. In July, the chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force, along with the secretary of the Air Force, showed up in the hangar. We had a big meeting. And they said, all right, you're now the number one priority in the U.S. Air Force. You're going to go from... Uh, from uh, this loping along pace to uh, you get to work half days and that meant two 12 hour shifts, seven days a week in the, in the uh, flight test squadron. So that was a pretty intense time, but I got there just in time to fly, 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 fly. And uh, that was really good. Um, this is an interesting picture. Um, it was taken from a, uh, a Mooney over the uh, desert there, uh, Northwest of Palmdale. You know, he, the, this Muni uh, is a friend of mine, a guy named David Byrne, and he does aerial surveys, so he's got cameras pointed down. And I don't know how it happened, purely accidental, but an F-22 showed up right underneath his airplane and hung out there for a little while for a photo shoot. <laughs> That's amazing. Something interesting to notice, if you look at the flight control surfaces, both ailerons are up, the flaperons are down, and the uh, rudders are canted outward. That means the speed brakes were extended. So the airplane does not have a dedicated surface for the speed brake, but it goes into this flail mode with the flight controls. And it's very, very effective to slow the airplane down. So clearly uh, the aircraft was intentionally trying to go slow to stay there. <laughs> go figure. <One> might think. <laughs> In theory, in theory. In theory, that's right. In a, in a hypothetical world, and I certainly hope the statute of limitations has expired. So what is, I mean, every pilot's going to want to know, what's it like to fly a Raptor? You know, the Raptor, in my, my first flight in the airplane um, was, uh, you know, like I said, 2002. And the airplane taxis like an old lady. It kind of creaks and groans when it's turning around corners. And uh, you're going, really? This is the Raptor, you know? And, and it, it doesn't seem like it's too happy on the ground, but I tell you what, you uh, light the afterburners and accelerate for takeoff. Now, that is a, a thump. Those burners uh, on the uh, Pratt & Whitney engines are just incredible. And as instant that airplane's in the air, you know you've got yourself a uh, agile fighting machine. Um, it, immediately recognizable as, uh, as something to contend with. Um, very short honeymoon period. The airplane physically is easy to fly. It doesn't uh, doesn't take any exceptional skill. The uh, flight control system keeps you out of trouble. There's no tendency for it to go out of control or anything. Uh, this picture here I took from an F-16 uh, out over the Pacific. Um, I don't know if you can see the curvature of the Earth or not, you know, small horizon there, but I'm at 50,000 feet as fast as the F-16 was allowed to go, 2.05 Mach. That is the F-22 at 60,000 feet just walking away. <laughs> you know, and paddling as fast as I could in a perfectly clean F-16. It was the new one, Block 50, with the big engines, and uh, wouldn't even stay close to the Raptor. That's amazing. 
Very, very, very cool. So what types yeah, of things were you testing? Is... What types of things were you testing on the Raptor? I'm sorry? What types of things were you testing on the Raptor? I, I was uh, privileged enough to do just about everything. Uh, yeah, envelope expansion, I did like four or five different envelope expansion programs. Uh, I was the uh, first guy to fire the uh, gun on the Raptor. First one to uh, do a rolling radar guided missile M120 shot off the Raptor. Probably shot, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 heat seeking missiles and another 10 or 12 uh, radar guided missiles off the airplane. Um, flutter. Uh, uh, we had a lot of little, you know, you find a problem, right? What's the problem? You got to define it, then they got to fix it, and then you got to go back and test to make sure the fix works right. We had a problem with the vertical tails vibrating in certain condition, and uh, we did a lot of work doing that. Um, as, uh, as I was telling you before, uh, a lot of times we would launch with a dedicated tanker, a KC-135 or a KC-10. In a three-hour test mission, we would air refuel six or seven times and literally suck those guys dry. They'd have to go home because they didn't have enough gas to fly any longer. That's that's amazing. Now, I, I briefly brought up, but there was one also that you talk about um, where you took the airplane up for some for some testing. What was this? Oh, well, let me bring um, that up for you. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, we went to uh, uh, Ielson Air Force Base in Fairbanks to do uh, IC runway testing. We spent a lot of government money proving that ice is slick. And uh, so uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I just crawled out of the airplane after a six hour flight up to Alaska and they handed me a beer and that was pretty doggone good tasting beer at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I know there's there's a lot of of, uh, of interesting things in the test and in, in, you know that that you did with with testing the aircraft. Um, my understanding is they also did a lot testing pilots. And um, were you part of any of that? Like what the what the pilots' experience was in the cockpit? Um, probably the biggest thing. I mean, you know, every now and then they took took the monkey cam to your helmet and they wanted to see what you were looking at. Um, some biometric uh, measurement stuff, uh, but uh, I was involved in the program when they thought we had a problem with the oxygen system, the O-box, and uh, it was probably the most messed up flight test I've ever been involved in because the, uh, the generals felt sure they had the answer. So, you know, it was like, hey, here's the answer now, go test and make sure that answer is true. And it turned out that, uh, what they thought it was, wasn't. And uh, we, we were just kind of abused as guinea pigs. Hmm. Um, they would suck the air out of our lungs. We had to collect urine for 24 hours after each flight. Um, go to the flight dock and do the spirometry. Then, you know, they're testing. <laughs> we're doing this test to see if we're gonna go hypoxic, if we're gonna have a physiological problem flying the airplane. And before flight, they would take seven vials of blood. So wait a minute, if I'm running a quart low on blood, you know, how's my oxygen saturation going to be? You know, it was uh, really pretty bizarre. Um, I, uh, I, for the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, I, I had to tell this story, you know, how messed up this thing was. And I knew 
that if I uh, said F-22, Raptor, Edwards, whatever, that, you know, the, uh, the uh, business development people, the, the um, program managers, security, everybody come after me. So I, I built an entire uh, report based on the uh, X-Wing fighter from Star Wars. And uh, that was the test vehicle, you know, multi-engine air dominance or space dominance fighter, you know, and, uh, you know, the flight surgeon was Darth Vader, you know, and I did all this stuff in there. And throughout the whole thing, I never mentioned F-22 once, but everybody knew perfectly clear what what I was talking about. So that was fun. <laughs> So t tell me a little bit about where you are now and uh, National Test Pilot School, and, and I'll lead into this with when you talk about cool shots, here's, here's a cool shot. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, Star Wars Canyon. Um, I'm at National Test Pilot School. I'm the president of the school right now. Uh, quite privileged to be in that position. And what we do is take uh, experienced pilots, and we teach them the art and science of being uh, test pilots and test engineers. Um, this picture and the previous one were probably taken, you know, within seconds of each other. Uh, and th this uh, particular picture was taken by a Red Bull photographer a guy named Jimmy Krantz, uh, who rappelled down the side of uh, Star Wars Canyon to, to get the shot, right? And uh, that's our uh, T-38 uh, that we fly at National Test Pilot School. Um, it's a star stage and screen. If you see the uh, Tom Hanks, Dan Aykroyd uh, Dragnet movie, that's the airplane that's in there. It's been in a bunch of Pepsi commercials, stuff like that. Um, that's the high end. Uh, we teach, uh, we use that airplane to, as an airplane goes through Mach 1 from subsonic to supersonic, the uh, stability characteristics change. And so we, uh, we take the students up, we start at 0.8 Mach, we accelerate out to about 1.2, and they're measuring the, uh, the stability of the airplane as we go through the supersonic. And uh, we also take the helicopter guys up so that when they go home, they go, yeah, I'm supersonic. <laughs> so they give them a little something to brag about. Um, our, our students at uh, National Test Pilot School are uh, essentially foreign allied military pilots and engineers. Um, our best customers are uh, Australia and Italy, um, but uh, in-house now we've got Canada, uh, Thailand, we have a guy from Switzerland, a uh, couple of students uh, from uh, Korea. So it, it's quite an international mix and it gets to be fun during the Olympics and during the World Cup because they all start you know, bagging on each other and having fun. So, so what, air, what aircraft do you have there? Uh, we've got uh, 27 different airplanes. We, on the low end, we've got a Cessna 152 that has been modified to be an optionally piloted vehicle. It's a it's a drone. But we really? put a pilot on board for takeoff and landing to uh, save a lot of FAA paperwork, and it also gives us that uh, see and avoid uh, criteria we can meet. But he takes off, they, they push a button, and, and then they fly the airplane like they would a, a, a drone. Um, a 172, couple of, or three Cessna 182s. Um, their advanced cockpit, they all got the Garmin 1000. We have uh, SR-22s. Um, 
see a couple of beach duchesses, light twins. Uh, so we do uh, engine out stuff. And that, you know, it's kind of fun. You, 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 you got a guy that's an F-16 dude or something, and he's in the, uh, you're, you're flying along. Okay, well, now we're going to do our uh, uh, minimum control speed airborne testing, and we're going to shut down an engine. And the first time a jet guy sees a propeller come to a stop, that's a major emotional event. <laughs> you, you know, hey man, you're getting ready to you get shocked a little bit here. Watch, you know, and the propeller stops. They go, whoa. Um, let's see, as we move on up, we've got a, uh, um, let's see, a couple of King Airs. Uh, on the jet side, we have a, uh, a fleet of Impalas. That's the Air Mach-E 326. Uh, it's, a, it's an older trainer airplane, but it's very good for spinning. It's very predictable. Uh, does the same thing time in, time out. So it's great to teach test pilots how to uh, uh, test uh, spinning aircraft. Uh, we have a couple of L-39 Albatrosses, and these are Czechoslovakian airplanes. So they're with the Eastern Bloc uh, design philosophy. So that gives them that to learn. We have the T-38. We also have a MiG-21. Do test pilots have to be experienced as well in, in, in jumping and in parachutes? Uh, nothing more than normal emergency training. Uh, we don't make sure they have 10 jumps or something like that, no. That's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. And then, of the course... The planning thing is so that you never have to use that parachute. <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, that brings you back and, and will you, back to where you are now and doing some of your own test pilot stuff. So will you be taking the uh, MiG-21 supersonic? I hope so. Right now, the weather's pretty crappy, and that was the plan today. Um, and I'm actually, uh, the, the owner of the airplane contracted with NTPS for my services, so I'm not, I'm not freelancing. Uh, and that allows uh, some convenience as far as insurance and things like that. Um, uh, the weather tomorrow is not looking too good, so hopefully, uh, hopefully Thursday we'll take her up. And uh, the plan is to go out to 1.3 Mach. That way you're you're well supersonic, but uh, you know anything faster than that is just burning gas, and you know, it's his money that we're putting in, a, in the airplane. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, JB, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It, it, it you really have led a a fascinating uh, career and and a, and a really really interesting life, getting to fly so many different aircraft, and of course it just keeps going and going and going with your role there at National Test Pilot School. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful for you taking time to join us and share your story of, of this and, and what makes the Skunk Works so special. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, yeah, it's my privilege, my honor to be asked to do this. And uh, I hope I've provided uh, some facts along with some entertainment. And uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You got it. Have a wonderful evening, JB. Thank you, sir. You Take too. Care. Good night. Bye. And to all of you, thank you so much for joining us this evening here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday, November 21st at 8 p.m. with what it's like to fly NASA's Super Guppy transport. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. We saw that aircraft out at AirVenture 2023 this year, and we're going to have some folks from there that are going to talk about it, what it does, its mission, what it's like to fly it, maintain it, etc. So very, very cool. And then Tuesday, November 28th at 8 p.m., flying the B-2 Stealth Bomber with Keith Reeves. 
that will be especially cool with what information at least he'll be able to tell us that isn't uh, super secret but it'll be uh, it'll be great and Keith uh, of course has piloted that aircraft for many years then on Tuesday December 5th at 8 p.m. Dick Rutan will be joining us again. He's coming back on the show, and we're going to talk about war stories and his time flying in Vietnam and afterwards. And I'll tell you, based on his book, The Next Five Minutes, that portion of his life is absolutely fascinating. Stories I had no idea about, and uh, and I cannot wait to have uh, Dick here on the show again telling his story. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight, and I wish you all blue skies. Thank you.